Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tea with HB is for everyone who dreams of a better world. Together, let's brew a new reality. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to Tea with HB. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really glad we got to connect. Yeah, for sure. You are the founder of the online community, Diversability. Can you tell us a bit about what that is and what inspired you to start it? Of course. So I started Diversability back in 2009, but I'll rewind even before then to share a little bit around my inspiration and motivation for starting it. So at the age of nine, in, in 1997, I was involved in a car accident where I became disabled. I permanently paralyzed one of my arms and my dad also passed away. And in the decade plus after I became disabled, I felt like I didn't really have spaces to either grieve or really understand what had happened. So young as well. Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's a TED Talk I often refer to with someone named Nadine Burke Harris, and she has a talk about the impact of adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACE in the, in the medical world, and its impact on your brain development. So when you talk about, you know, oh, you're so young, that's also when my brain was still very malleable, right? And so to experience something at nine that was not only a drastic change in my body, but also a drastic change in my family unit and who supported me, I'm, I'm still doing the work on, the, on that healing side of things. Absolutely. I, I developed symptoms for my invisible illness at similar age, nine, 10, and it's ridiculously difficult to navigate because I think when you're an adult, it comes with its own difficulties for sure, but usually you already have a support group that has kind of been formed. And unfortunately for a lot of people, you know, being diagnosed with something that can put strain on those relationships. But when you're a child, you can't even communicate really about what's happening to you, or you might have the words to communicate about it, but the other children around you are not on that level at all. They don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I love the way that you highlighted that because I, I didn't have the words. So for the next 10 plus years, I didn't really talk about the car accident. And, you know, much of the way that I viewed my disability was influenced by my mom, who was a refugee from the Vietnam War. And in certain Asian cultures, disability is very stigmatized, seen as taboo, seen as causing shame to the family. 
very much a let's fix it, let's hide it type of mentality. Um, and, and so that's the space that I grew up in. And come 2009, which is where Diversibility 1.0 started, I really thought about and became curious about what it would look like to ground myself in a disability community. And now, you know, Diversibility turns 12 this year. I it's been 24 years. So I spent, I spent half of the, my time disabled, like living in a medical tragedy model mindset, and then the other half really exploring what it looked like through a social or empowerment or identity-based model of disability. By creating Diversibility and by creating this community, I was not only able to meet other people who were so empowered in their disability narratives and took ownership over their disability identity, but it's also where I like found my voice. And in community is where I started to started the process and the journey of unlearning my own internalized ableism. What creates the experience of internalized ableism is both the combination of absorbing all of these external ableist messages of people telling us that we're not normal, that we're broken, that we need to be fixed, and combining that with not having spaces to talk about how ableism is impacting us. Um, and so by meeting all these other people, by being in community, I can now talk to other people. Hey, like, it doesn't make me feel good that every single time someone asks what surgery is available or what's wrong with my hand or can it be fixed? Um, do you get that too? You know, and realizing that we're not alone in this experience. It's very weird for me because I'm you, but sort of 10 years prior, I guess. So when you created Diversibility, I was just about to develop symptoms because I'm a 2000s baby. So I was just about to turn 10 and enter that world of thinking I was dying for two years and then realizing oh this is just how it is now and no vocabulary I didn't know the word ableism until 2020 I didn't I didn't understand that that had its own name and I didn't think of myself or call myself disabled because I thought well I'm not disabled I, I don't use a wheelchair all the time even though I'm a part-time wheelchair user and most days I can't get out of bed so it's really interesting you talk about the ability to speak to other people but it's everyone needs to talk to each other we all need to communicate with each other right but it's not just the talking it's having the vocabulary to understand your experiences because especially as a child going through that and not understanding what's happening to you it's terrifying and you can't you can't talk about it because you're on your own so creating a community as you have done is it's life-saving and life-changing and incredible well, I'm grateful that you're part of you're part of our community. And and the other thing I'll say too, I think to your point with like not knowing what the right words are, I think one of the things that I've learned more recently is that sometimes you just don't have the words and by consuming other people's content, watching TED Talk videos, watching listening to podcasts, that's actually where you start to find mirrors of yourself and start to figure out how you want to articulate your own story. Right, because sometimes, you know, and especially at the age that we were both at, why why would we put that burden, you know, and I put burden in air quotes, onto a kid to grow up all of a sudden, you know, and so much of the work that I do now personally is 
what are, what's the next thing that Tiffany can do to tap into her inner child? Because she was nine years old on November 28th, 1997. And then on November 29th, 1997 became disabled and then was a 30 year old woman, you know? (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I, I just want kids to be able to be kids, but, um, whoever is listening to this, if you are going through your own journey, I think, just hearing other people's stories will help you realize where you fit and and what words you want to use for your own story. Yeah, and it's so important to remember that we won't all use the same words even if we have similar experiences. And you can have the exact same diagnosis as another person and have completely different experiences, completely different treatment and medication plans and methods of coping. But I also want to say children are a fantastic resource and we really underestimate them, I think, because I remember being a child and I don't, I don't remember thinking any differently. I had the same thought process. I had the same amount of trying to imagine what it was like in other people's heads. And I think empathy can be taught, but I think some people are naturally more sensitive or empathetic than others. So at the same time as we're saying, let children be children, I also think we need to recognise that they are capable of understanding things that we think they're not capable of. And the children who become disabled as children, they we, we say that they grow up. And I think that's so hard for me to wrap my head around because there are some adults who are, have never grown up in that way and will not have the same ability to empathise or ability to recognise different things that is a skill you learn by being a different race, by being someone in a minority group. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot we can do within the education system to actually just teach about disability and that, and so it's not so othered or stigmatised and so that the community can start when we're children and we don't have to create it for ourselves like you mm. had to. I mean, I... I... I feel like all of this is a yes and. Like, I want to acknowledge the dualities of of life that do exist, right? In the fact that as a nine or a 10-year-old young girl, uh, we do have consciousness around what our world looks like. And we internalize a lot of messages more, more than we think, right? But at the same time, I also don't wish what happened to me onto anyone else. Um, not only the way, you know, and if you look at the definition of trauma, it's the lack of, or the inability. I I mean, I, I don't know what the actual definition, but my understanding of it is your inability to cope with something kind of like shocking that happens in the moment. Right. And that's when it either becomes like little, little T or big T trauma. That's something I really wish I'd Uh, recognized or just known earlier as well I I read The Body Keeps the Score this year I don't know if you've read that book but it's incredible I'm I'm about halfway through yeah it's 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 so so good good. and it's it's basically I mean there's so much to it I'm not even going to try and give you a summary but anyone listening you should read it but one of the things I took from it is that trauma looks different for everybody and trauma happens to everybody even if it's just and I say just in quotation marks, being yelled at as a kid, you know, for the parent, 
that could just be a moment of, oh, I burnt the cookies and I'm late for this and I need to get this person here. And it's just a moment of stress where they just yell. But for the child, that's a complete, like a shaping moment in their lives because they've been yelled at by someone they trusted, you know, and, and, and everyone experiences some kind of trauma. And I, it's just, so, it's not talked about. We're not, we're not told that we're allowed to talk mm-hmm. about how we feel about things and we should be it's powerful I still have I still have half the other half of the body keeps the score to read but yeah for anyone who has an interest in wanting to better understand trauma and how it gets stored in your body it is it's a book it's a book that only 50% of the way through I'd recommend <laughs> yeah and I'm, I'm certain you'll recommend it when you finished it as well <laughs> But it's it's just one of those books where everyone should read it because it gives you such foundational knowledge for how our bodies work. And you don't have to be diagnosed with PTSD to have experienced trauma. There are more kinds of things that happen to us than just war, for example, which I think when you when you talk about shell shock, PTSD, that's where people's minds go. And then they immediately sort of gaslight themselves as, well, I, I've never been in a war, so I can't be traumatized. And that kind of mindset. And it's it's unfortunately not true because our bodies just don't work like that. We're still stressed about exams as much as we would be if we were being chased by a dinosaur in the caveman era, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll highlight too, so I was diagnosed with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder in, in 2019. And... I think similar to you, right? Like I ha- I haven't been in a war, but I have experienced something traumatic. And part of the reason why PTSD symptoms get exacerbated is when we don't when we don't deal with the trauma or acknowledge it, right? So um, my hope is that you know your trauma is n- not as severe that it gets to a point where where people start to experience symptoms of PTSD. Um, and you allow your body to move through, you know, what I'm learning is now called like the stress response cycle. But but at least for me, and, you know, I'll, I'll bring in the Asian cultural context again, is that so many of us have learned how to mask our emotions or suppress them, that I think that there are more of us with mental health conditions than we realize. And it's intergenerational trauma that's passed down. It's the immigration story and, you know, being in a country the U.S. for me that still sees us as perpetual foreigners that we don't belong, right? And so much of what so much of what you have talked about is my desire to create my community was a desire to find a sense of belonging. And so much of what I'm finding from other people is they're creating communities as well because they want like all of us are just on this constant search to find what spaces we belong in. I think in. we all are. I think that is the human condition. We want we want to love and we want to be loved. And in order to do that, we need to talk to each other, to find out each other's love languages, to communicate with one another. Your writing just inspired me so much because you talked about belonging and belonging with all these identities that coexist within you. And whether that's being female and being a child and being disabled and being Asian, all these things mean that you don't quite fit anywhere because you're too female for this or too Asian for this. Whatever that means, that we have these labels that we put on people. And you talk about belonging 
And what does that what does that look like for you? If, if this were an ideal world, how would you picture yourself just belonging? Mm. I think for me, you know, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in the context of being an Asian woman is I want to be able to walk outside of my door and feel safe. And, you know, I, I think there's some dotted line that I have or some squiggly line that I haven't quite figured out where having just a sense of psychological safety is tied to is tied to not only my liberation but also my sense of belonging. But I think what I've also realized is I think I've grown comfortable that I'm not going to fit into a box. And you know, you even look at Diversibility's founding story, I created my own box. Um and even in the context of that, there's so many different perspectives and stories and narratives of other people who are coming to our community who are figuring out is this the place where I'm going to find my fit. I have been on a very intentional journey over the last couple of years of realizing that belonging is myself. And so much of what I think I strived for for years was finding a sense of belonging through the lens and through the eyes of other people. And you and I chatted a little bit briefly before we started recording about how we're starting some of us are starting to reemerge from our year plus long quarantine but I just feel so grateful for this time to sit with myself and be okay with myself and so much of what my personal mission statement is is how can I lead by example so that other people know that it's okay to be themselves I can have put it better that's exactly how I feel because labeling i really don't find helpful partly because i think everyone is fluid we will change and it's good to change and you shouldn't feel afraid to make a mistake or go back on what you once thought or said because that's again the nature of humanity is that we should be evolving and we should be becoming better than we were previously and i think labeling really hinders us in that way and so many people search through gender identity, sexuality, finding a label, differently able, disabled, trying to find something like wearing a hat that makes them feel comfortable. And actually you you might find a hat that is like a beanie and it's really snug for a little bit, but at some point that's going to change and you're absolutely right. Belonging can only happen when you find it within yourself. And it is there, but it takes a long a long time to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. I recently and I don't know, and I and I know you probably have a couple more years before you turn 30, but I noticed a big shift when I turned 30 in terms of how I viewed success. So similar to you, and, and I'm also, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants. So my family came to America understanding that our key, or with the belief that our key to success was going to be viewed through our achievements and through our productivity and our contributions to a capitalistic society, right? You talked about, and we all know, or if you're just listening and learning, capitalism and productivity inherently are ableist, right? Because they're placing value and worth on a person's body and or mind and ability to work quicker, faster, hustle than another person's. 
at this at the same time. So my definition of success, so I turned 30, definition of success transitioned from, you know, before I used to be very achievement oriented to now the short version of it is when I look in the mirror, do I like what I see? And what I mean by that is not the visible manifestation of how I look, though I feel like I look pretty fabulous, but, um, you do. But it's You're really, very do I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, thank you. But it's also, it's, but really it's number one, do I like how I'm showing up? Like, do I actually like who is showing up? And then am I living in alignment and in integrity with myself? I think something I've learned in lockdown is to be more comfortable with the things that I'm unable to do. And I, I would pretend that I was more capable when I was younger to fit in, to try and blend in and to be more palatable, I guess, like, I would put my arm in a sling, even though it wasn't broken, just as a visual aid for other people to to say, I'm having a high pain day, please don't touch me. Because I couldn't say that. And I just wondered, I mean, obviously you've talked a bit about this, but did you feel you had to hide parts of yourself? And do you still feel ever that you have to hide parts of yourself to fit in society or if you're going to a certain place? Or do you feel like you're at the point now where you've left that kind of mindset behind? I used to hide the visible manifestation of my disability. So my hand is smaller and shorter than my other arm. I've got muscle atrophy. I've got, you know, and the clinical term is claw hand. I don't know why uh, it's called that, but my fingers are are hyperextended too, um, you know, in an, in an angle that... Um, that I haven't seen from anyone else, which means that I'm a special snowflake. But uh, what I started doing was I started putting it front and center on video. And I, yeah, I mean, now I've made so many videos like that. I'm just like, and people all get, still get comments being like, why does your hand look like that? And I respond and I say, what do you mean? Um, to really give them an opportunity to say, you know, let me think more about this question that I just posed or this comment that I just made. That's so important as well to not shut people down because we're not going to progress. But also it's so exhausting to always have to be in that mindset of educating other people. Yeah, yeah. It's, again, it's the dualities of, of knowing on the one hand, this is a teachable moment. And on the other hand, I'm really tired because if you are asking me what's wrong with my hand, think about how many other people have asked me what's wrong with my hand. And the, and just the terminology, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong? Because it's different? Yeah. Why is that wrong? Yeah. Yeah. But again, like this is what's at the root of microaggressions, right? Is a seemingly well-intentioned, curious question can ultimately end up shaping that someone feels like there's something fundamentally wrong with them. I mean, there was a period of time where after making these videos showing my hand, I started to really be weighed down by it. And I started to, I actually went to the uh, community that I'm a part of with people who have my injury and I took a picture of my hand and I said, does your hand look like this? <laughs> um, and, and I got so many comments being like, yep, looks exactly like that. And then I was like, wow, I, I, because I, and, and here I, and I was in my thirties, right? Like here I am 20 years after this now questioning because I've gotten so many questions. It just goes to show, doesn't it? You, you come across and you are so confident and knowledgeable and even you still have this thought in the back of your head of, 
oh, is this is this wrong? Because so many people are saying, oh, what's wrong with you? Is is it actually wrong? And it's so it's disgusting, but also comforting to know yeah. that you also feel that kind of doubt in your own head. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I want to be relatable too. I mean, I'm not like I I think I I mean I I think I think I'm still, and I try to get this across in my in my social media platforms as well, is that. I'm still learning, right? I used to call my my paralyzed arm my funny hand. And I'd have videos that a lot of people have watched where I reference it that way. And then, you know, in this journey of the body love, the body acceptance, I'm like, would I say like, oh, I have a funny face? Or like, why? Yeah, exactly. Like, like but but that's how I was self-describing it and and that gave that gave me that gave other people permission to reference my body and maybe they maybe for them to think that it was okay to reference other people's bodies that way too. So so we're all learning together um and and I will st- say I still have areas of insecurity and trauma that I continue to work through around like I feel very comfortable in my disability story. I felt very uncomfortable over the, or I have felt very uncomfortable over the past three plus months of the rise in anti-Asian violence because I haven't done as much work and am not as educated around that aspect of my identity, my race and how it's been seen. And how the two things are combined as well. And and they're the same, yeah. And they're, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm all of these things. You, you can't separate them. You can't be like, okay, I'm going to deal with this today and I'll make time for that next year because it doesn't work like yeah. that. Yeah, and, and, it, and it makes me think about how when I walk out onto the street, what people see. So technically I can, I, technically I have non-disabled passing privilege because unless you're looking super closely or I'm trying to do manual labors or something, you may not see that my arm is paralyzed because it just is falling by my side, which when our arms are in a resting position, that's where they are. <laughs> I want to note that it's it's frustrating. We call it a uh, privilege and I th- it is definitely in some ways, but there's also a negative to that when you're trying to fight for access or fight for people to believe that you're ill because I I also have that I'm invisibly ill unless you look really 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 closely and know me really well on a bad day then you can sometimes maybe see it <laughs> but it's it's interesting for me to hear your side of things because you kind of have both in a way um, as I do I guess when I'm in a wheelchair I found it very hard to deal with that duality I'm listening to you and thinking, oh, oh yeah, that, that must be so difficult. And then I'm thinking, I have the same thing. Because <laughs> sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I the, the one thing I think about is someone asked me, they said, Tiffany, why do you lead with your disability first? And this is actually a question that, that um, I host... I host a room on Clubhouse every week where we dive into different topics and someone came in and they said, you know, oftentimes I find that when I don't lead with my disability, we can have a very different type of conversation than when we do. 
And again, this comes into question why for those of us who don't like for those who of us who have non-visible disabilities, we can choose how much we want to share and how little we want to share and when it is all sides of it are exhausting, right? Again, for me, this comes back to this idea of liberation, which is how can we create a world where you can show up unapologetically as yourself in your illness, in your sick body, in your disabled body, and be seen and not gaslit, right? And believed in the validity of your experiences and that story. And since when, because 70% of disabilities are non-visible, since when did we decide that visibility, that, that disability looked like a wrist splint and a sling and a wheelchair and crutches? So, um, so I'm still learning as well. So I, I haven't really, I, I do wear a wrist splint sometimes, um, both for people always ask me why I wear the splint, which I don't know why you, why that matters to you, but, um, I wear it for a uh, wrist stability and then also for the knuckle, knuckle hyperextension. In my head, it's like, why do you wear glasses? Mm, mm-hmm. it, it would be as weird as saying that, right? Because it's, it's a medical thing. <sighs> I remember to breathe. I just took a deep breath. And um, one of the things that I talk a lot about in my work is trying to do my best to master the reset. And what I mean by that is when someone goes, whoa, what happened to your hand? Right? When I'm wearing my splint, reset. Because this is that person's first time asking me but could be the millionth time that someone's asked me. I think because of the work that I do, and I feel very open talking about it, I don't mind, but it's a lot. It's, it is tiring. It is exhausting. And I hope, I hope that your listeners you know, find the time to rest. I am very boundaried in terms of rest. And I think that goes back to teaching children in schools, because if you have that foundation level of this is what disability is, it doesn't always look like this, it can be rude to ask questions because they're tired and it can be their millionth time answering even though it's your first time asking. Just that simple sentence told to a class of children would have such a huge impact on the rest of their lives. People often ask me if I can do more work with kids and I feel very hopeful about Gen Z. I know that's not kit. That's not the type of kids we're talking about. And I don't know if they've named this next generation, but I, I'm curious if, if it weren't being disabled, kids would find some other aspect of difference, perhaps me being Asian or the color of my hair, or the way my eyes look to, um, to exacerbate me feeling, feeling ashamed of myself, right? Even in my generation, I'm technically Gen Z, I think, but even in my generation, the word gay was still used as an insult. And we learned that together almost, and still people my own age will use that as an insult. So it, it, there's always going to be something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we continue, you know, I, I think I'm becoming a little bit more... So, um, so yeah, so we used to weaponize... LGBT terms in the past, we continue to weaponize disability terms, right? That's so lame. Oh um, gosh, yeah. That person's mentally ill. Uh, and then the I'm like, well, dumb. yeah, 
then I'm like, well, I actually, I actually am mentally ill. So what are you trying to say? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. um, and then, and then the whole room just goes quiet and you're like, <laughs> and you're just trying to <laughs> make them realize what they've said, but you don't want to make everyone else feel terrible. But then they've also got to realize that they're kind of making you feel terrible. So mm, mm. I, I, I think, I think I approach all of this by saying, how can I have as much fun along this process as possible? Like talking about ableism is serious, but someone posted something on Instagram that said it is an act of defiant. It's an act of defiance to be proud to be disabled in an ableist society. And so even just existing sometimes as disabled or chronically ill people is exhausting <laughs> because we're getting so, so much messaging pointed at us. And not only is the intrusive questions, it's just the messaging that's out there that's saying, we don't have a body that fits in a swimsuit. You know, we don't have a, we don't have a look that, you know, fits into this. So, so again, coming back to this theme of belonging and this idea of where do we fit, it's how can we become okay that we don't fit anywhere. And again, I guess back to this idea that we just fundamentally belong to ourselves. That's a beautiful ending. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation and for all the work you do. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. And I love I love all of your work as well. You're super talented and Thank you I can't so wait to see, you know, what what the next 10 years look like for you when you're in my position. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave me a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can also find me on Patreon, Instagram, and YouTube. And for more, check out my newsletter and website, www.twithhb.com. Thank you for staying with me until the end of the episode. To show my appreciation, here's a preview of next week's episode. Intersectionality. Our system is designed to benefit some people and place others at a disadvantage according to their societal category. And in order to redesign it, we need to talk about and protect all marginalised groups, not just the ones that are trending, because social minorities are interconnected. You cannot dismantle one and ignore the others. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.